Whatever is happening in our world, we must never forget where all of history is heading. And the choir has helped us do that this morning. And really, this is exactly what John has been teaching us in his letter of 1 John, about the impact of knowing as God's children where life is headed and what our destination actually is. And last week, we learned from the end of chapter 2 that those who have staying power, that is, those who persevere in the faith, instead of joining the Antichrist spirit of the age, those who turn away, that the people that persevere are marked by abiding in the Word. The Word abides in them. They're marked by discernment from the indwelling Spirit of God that's anointed them, and they are marked by eager expectation of Christ's coming. John observes that because God is righteous, those who are born of Him practice righteousness. That's the the basic character of their lives. These are the ones who eagerly await Christ's second coming. They live in light of their accountability to Him. It's not that they're sinless, but that righteousness is the dominant character of their way of life. Well, John's reference to being born of God tells us that this kind of life doesn't come purely by human effort. There is something deeper going on. There's an eternal, internal transformation that is driving the outward change and the outward behavior. We call it regeneration, born again. And I love the definition of being saved, the life of God in the soul of man. Remember what Jesus said to the great Bible teacher and leader Nicodemus in John 3.3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He was reading Nicodemus's thoughts. Nicodemus served on the Sanhedrin, 70 elders who led Israel. He was a teacher of God's law. He was, he was in his prime in terms of leadership, but he is earnest in his searching. The miracles that Jesus was doing drove Nicodemus to the conclusion that Jesus was no ordinary man, and that Jesus very possibly was the Messiah for whom Nicodemus and others had been waiting all their lives. The kingdom of God looked to be at hand, and that was what was on Nicodemus's mind. And that is why Nicodemus sought out Jesus. He came to him by night because even that early on, there were many enemies of Jesus among the colleagues of Nicodemus. You must be born again. Those words astonished Nicodemus. How is this even possible, he asked. Nicodemus lived and worked among men who were very serious about biblical religion, but they emphasized a system of external rules of righteousness rather than inward change. Power, politics, and pride were their stock and trade, all of which required a heavy dose of hypocrisy, trying to appear more righteous than they actually were. By the way, that is the common notion of who you are. 
and of what Christianity is and what churches are all about. It worked to some degree with a human audience. The Pharisees, for instance, were considered the most advanced religious people of the time. But nobody can fool God that way. And deep down, we all know that, however good we try to appear. So in 1 John 3, 1 through 3, John turns attention to the supernatural phenomenon of being born again. He's not just engaging in mystical talk. He's talking about something that's for real. You can hardly underestimate the strategic importance of what John teaches us here. So follow with me as I read 1 John 3, 1 through 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this, who thus hopes in Him, purifies Himself as He is pure." So our three points merge with the three verses. Easy to remember. Verse 1 is our present identity. Verse 2, our future perfection. And verse 3, our practical purity. Let's start first with this present identity. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. The word see at the beginning is often translated behold. Behold, I come quickly. Or behold, I am with you all the days. It means to give attention to something, to look at it. That this is, this is for real. This is something that you can actually observe. What manner of or see what kind of love literally the underlying language is very interesting. It's of what country, of what fatherland the Father has given to us. Um, the love that the Father has given to us comes from a, a, a sort of a, a different source. In fact, it's a word we get paternity from or patriotism. Somebody who's a patriot loves uh, his fatherland. And this love that God has given to us points to the country, of what country, of what fatherland it's come from. It's an expression of astonishment, the Father's love given to us that we should be called children of God. And the term he uses for children here is a term that emphasizes not so much our being under God's authority as our being born of Him. In other words, it's underscoring that we have His very nature because we have received life from Him. We're not just called children. We actually are. This is who we are. Here is the chief concern regarding anyone's identity. Are you born of God? 
a true child of God, his spiritual DNA shaping what you desire and how you think and, and how you live. It's, it's more than just what you know. The Gnostics were big on that. It's who you are. If my life is flowing from who I actually am, then there can be a consistency to that life. If I'm trying to pretend like I'm something that I'm not, if I'm trying to measure up, if I'm trying to just add um, a list of disciplines, it, there can be a big difference between what I'm practicing on the outside and, and, and the person I actually am, and it becomes difficult for me to actually live in a way that honors God and not just the public arena when other people are watching, but also the private arena, not just when I'm coming to church, but when I'm in the home. There's a consistency to the life of a person who actually has an identity in God. He's been born of God. Being born again does not come from your own effort, by definition. Any more than any child is born by his own will. Rather, children are a product of their parents' love. There is a special bond of love that parents feel for their children. I remember with our, our first son, because you know everything's new, I wasn't prepared for how deeply I would love him and how much I would like him as a person. I had, I had never, never felt that strongly about anyone except my, my wife. And I thought that was like the, just the romance side, but it was, it, this isn't, it was deeper than romance. It was great love that parents feel for their children, and so it is with God the Father for His own children. If we have life from Him, there is no question that God loves us. Now, we're familiar with the fact that God displayed His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But do you realize He also shows His deep love for us, His eternal love for us, by not only having Christ die for us, but by bringing us to life out of the deadness of our trespasses and sin, giving us His life, our status as born ones of God, His children, that status sets us apart from the world that's in rebellion against God. And this is the reason, John explains, that the world does not know us. It did not know Him. You remember John's words in the Gospel of John, in chapter 1, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world, speaking of Jesus. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, that is, his own things, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, and then listen to the words, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The world didn't know Jesus when he came in human flesh, even though he taught truth like no other ever did, and did miracles like no other, and lived sinless like no other. How could we be surprised if the world doesn't really know us either. His glory was veiled in human flesh. 
I mean, think about it. He seemed insignificant. He's born in a manger. He's just a child. King of the Jews, king of the world, savior of the world. How could this be? He had such a humble lifestyle. His glory was veiled in human flesh, and our future glory is veiled in human frailty even more so. Now, the world may try to explain the Christian is just a person who likes religious ceremonies, like some people like movies or bike riding or football. They may cast them as hypocrites and self-righteous. They may balk at what they consider judgmentalism because Christians claim to know the difference between right and wrong. Christians seem bound up in following this ancient book Perhaps they're a little bit unstable, seeking after mystical experiences, or maybe they're just trying to maintain the tradition of their forefathers, or, or maybe they're part of, of a religious business or a religious cabal, a movement that's seeking money and power and influence. You see all these explanations for Christianity. But a real Christian is shaped by something much deeper and far-reaching and everlasting. He has God's life in him. He is born of God, a born one of God. It's not just a surface thing. It's his his or her core identity, and that identity drives everything else. So this morning, there, there are lots of ways we can measure, you know, who we are and you know, often when you meet somebody, you say, well, well, what do you do? Because we attach who this person is by whatever their skill set is and however they make their living or, or what part of the country or what part of the world did you come from or, uh, you know, what's your education level or, or are, are you wealthy or poor or lots of other ways of defining a person's identity. But that's not, those things don't measure your chief identity. Who are you? Why do you think and live the way you do? What are you aware of in your heart of hearts that shows that God is actually there? If you know you're born again, that is the most important thing about who you are. So revel in that. Rejoice in it. Let it fill up your life. God has proven his love to you. You know what this means? It means that that no longer is your chief identity your sin. Don't wallow in your sin. Don't, Don't let it cause you to despair the guilt that it brings and the power that it has. That is not your chief identity anymore. Don't wallow in it and and surely don't celebrate it. That is not who you are. You're better than that, not because you're so good, but because God is so good and he's given you life. Like the song says, I am no longer a slave. I am a child of God. God has proven his love for you in a way that changes you forever. At the level of identity, your destiny, your happiness, your inheritance, 
Do you see it? Because that's the way John starts. See, behold, do you see what God has given to you? Does it give you the astonishment and the joy that it should? What love God has shown you. Second, John talks about future perfection. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. It's striking that John once again calls his readers beloved. God loves them. John loves them. They live in a sphere of heaven's love because they're already God's children. In fact, Jesus would say that love is what's going to be the hallmark of those that are actually His followers. And so, the, the prevailing, pervasive culture that you ought to see among believers is a, a sense of love, a sense of being loved by God, a love for God, a love for one another. It, it is really a community of love. God marked by steadfast love, His people marked by the same thing. Well, somebody says, you know, I get what you're saying. It's true. We're born again, and that's, that's amazing. But there are still so many battles, and I still have so many flaws. And it seems like, it seems like we're having to wait forever for better days ahead. And perhaps you have discovered, and, and likely you have, after about one week of being saved... You're finding out that living for Jesus in this world is no easy road. Now, some look at this and they feel like they got sold a bill of goods. That somehow the gospels misled them. They they thought that when they turned to Jesus, everything would ease up. No more frustration and pain. I mean, didn't he say, My peace I leave with you? Didn't he? You know, don't we talk about being dissatisfied and that he's going he's gonna to finally satisfy what our heart is longing for? Then why do I still feel the struggle? I can almost guarantee that nearly everyone in the room has felt this. And part of the reason is the way sometimes the gospel is peddled, as if all your problems go away if you just turn to Jesus. You know, walk down an aisle and bow the knee and say a prayer and presto, everything's suddenly perfect. That's not what the Scriptures teach. Scriptures are very frank with us. Sanctification means becoming more and more like Jesus. And what did Jesus say if you're going to follow Him? You have to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Him. Taking up a cross is not defined as fun. It's an instrument of torture and death. And so, following Jesus may mean persecution and torture and death. It will mean battles, battles against the flesh, against Satan, against the world. It will include mistreatment. Everyone that lives godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. We live in hostile territory of the world, dominated by the spirit of anti-Christ. So, if we're identified with Christ, 
the Antichrist spirit is going to be working against us. But we mustn't let that discourage us. The best still is yet to come. We have tasted a little of God's goodness. We can't even imagine how good it's going to be. And Jesus told us it would be this way. He, he told us that in this world, it, it was going to be a tough go, but that it would be worth it in the end. And, and the thing is, as we, we, we sing songs, you know, the choir helped us get there and the orchestra to imagining what it would be like when, when everything's finally wrapped up and Christ is ruling, but, but the reality is that there's just a lot we still don't know about what that's going to be. And John himself, he's an apostle, he's, he says, what we will be has not yet appeared. It, it's not been made clear to us yet. It's not manifested yet. We're looking forward to something, quite frankly, that we've never fully experienced. And, and, and we have to use imagination to, to even consider that it could be true. But this we do know. When he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. When we see him, we will realize that those good changes that were happening in us all along were leading us toward the perfect, sinless character of Jesus. We will shine with the beauty that he bears. This is our stunning destiny. It almost seems too good to be true, but God has promised it, and, and He has predetermined that this is, is what we will be. The fact is that there are a lot of things we can suffer in this world, but, but I think the thing we suffer most of is the disappointment with ourselves, that we're not further along, that we, we make the mistakes that we do, that we follow the sins that we do, that we have the struggles that we do, and and we go through life and we start off with these grand, glorious idea of what we're going to be and what we're going to accomplish. And then as life goes on, you know, you know the reason for midlife crisis is it's not happening the way we thought it would happen. And then, and then we go on and on and on. And even if we live to be 100 eventually, all the things we used to be able to do, we can't do anymore. That could discourage us. That could tear us down, but that's not our ultimate destiny. God has predetermined that, that He is going to make us perfect like Jesus. Romans 8, 28 to 30, but we know that for those who love God, and those that love God are those that God loved first, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, he set the boundaries ahead of time to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, those he marked out as his children, as the brothers and sisters of Jesus who would be like him, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified, he declared them righteous, and those whom he justified he also glorified. Now, if you're a believer this morning, you've already experienced God's call. You've already taken by faith that you're declared righteous, you're justified before God. 
but you're not at your glory stage yet. And nobody can convince you really that you are. It's, it's kind of salesmanship to get you there. Glory's yet to come. Here's what God is doing. Human beings were created in God's image, but our fall into sin marred that image. It's not gone, but it's twisted and marred. Jesus restores the image of God in us. We are a new creation in him. We shall be like Jesus, and even our bodies will be transformed. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The power of God that that spoke the universe into existence, the power of God that will bring Jesus to reign over everything is the same power at work in you. This is why you change. This is why your destiny is secure. 1 Corinthians 15, 49, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, the first Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, the second Adam, Jesus Christ. This process is already begun. If you are a believer this morning, if you've been born again, you are being transformed. We call this progressive sanctification, progressively becoming more and more like Jesus, progressively progressively living, becoming more in line with the fact that you belong to God as a holy people set apart to Him. 2 Corinthians 3.18, but we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord. In other words, we're looking at Him, we're looking at who He is, We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. How is this possible? For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. If you're a born one of God, if you're a child of God, there is this destiny, this future perfection that will be yours, and you are on that journey now. And that leads inevitably to verse 3, the practical purity that characterizes daily life now. Everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as he is pure. The word to purify, the word purifies and pure come from a context of people setting themselves apart making themselves ceremonially clean so that they can engage in worship. But it carries over from just religious practices and getting ready for a religious service. It carries over into everyday living in accord with God's definitions of right and wrong. In other words, it's it's not just ceremonially. It's not just that you go to church on Sunday mornings. It's not just that you sing hymns or read your Bible. It's also ethical. It's also moral. It has to be this, right? Because if, if the change that God is working in me only has me singing different songs or going to a different building on Sunday morning, I mean, really, what difference does that make? But if the songs that I sing and the building that I go to and the people that I'm gathering with are actually part of a bigger picture that God has changed who I am, 
And this is only one expression of the fact that God is changing me and that I have a, a new destiny and I, He is my heavenly Father, then that's going to carry over from Sunday to Monday to Tuesday to Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And, and it's going to show up when I'm all by myself. It's going to show up when I'm with my family and how I treat them. It's going to show up in, in my place of business. It's going to show up when I meet a stranger on, on the street. It's, it's just going to show up in every way. Why? Because it's part of who I am. John's wording here reveals that, that this is an intentional process. Everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself. Well, if I'm having to purify myself, that, that points to an, an active endeavor. It suggests progress and therefore the reality that I'm not sinless yet. I, I'm having, you know, you come in from, from working in the backyard and it's time for supper and you remember what your mom told you since you were a kid before you come to the table, what? Wash your hands. Well, we're not sinless. The only reason you wash your hands is because your hands are dirty. The reason we have to purify ourselves is because our lives are dirty. We need that continual washing. We need that confession of sin. Our great desire is to remove whatever would cloud our vision of God, whatever would make us unclean, whatever would make us unfit to enter God's presence, whatever would, would, would cast a shadow over the image of Christ that is growing in us. Now, hope in the Scriptures is not just wishful thinking, it's future certainty. And this hope is fueled by the promises of God. A promise, by definition, attaches to the future. Future certainty. If God has promised it, I know it will come to pass. Knowing from God that complete holiness is our promised destiny motivates us and encourages us to fight for purity because now we know that it's not a a futile battle. Look, when you know your destination, you don't take roads that go the opposite direction. This is your destination. This is the road to glory. You're on the road. You're following Jesus. 2 Corinthians 7.1, since we have these promises, beloved, Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Our our minds set on God, our our promises from God that we hold to be true, our status as those that have life from God means that we can engage in this battle. In fact, this is the mark of true believers. It's not that they're sinless. It's that they're always fighting their sin. The person that's not born again doesn't care. It's just... You know, does a fish know he's wet? But when God has changed my nature, when God has made me clean on the inside, when he's, he's forgiven my sin, he's given me new life, then that bothers me when, when there's stuff that is dirty in my life. I want to be clean because I'm a child of God. 
What promises is 1 Corinthians 7.1 talking about? Well, in the previous verses, Paul has explained. And he's trying, he's trying to get people to live lives that are in accord with who they actually are. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? The Corinthians, because the idol temples served great food, and you had great fellowship, like town festivals, they said, hey, it's no big deal that, that it's in honor of an idol. I'm just going to enjoy the good food. And, and Paul had to say, no, you know, this is, not, this, is, this is not what you're supposed to be engaging in. This is hurting your brothers, and, and this is defiling you. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? We are the temple of the living God. God's in us. And God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from the midst to be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and, and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Those are the promises he's talking about. He said, if we have these promises that God has made us as children, if we have these promises that God is with us and God is in us, then we're going to work at this cleansing ourselves from every defilement. God is light, and we are children of light. The closer we draw to the light, the more evident our sins are, and the more we seek cleansing from them. If you're a born-again believer, you are God's child. His life runs in your veins. So why would you want to live as if the devil were your father instead of God? God has transformed us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. So make sure that Christ is ruling in your heart. What idols do you need to purge from your life? What matters more to you than God? What do you trust more? What do you fear to lose more? What gives you more joy than God? What idols do you need to purge from your life? What sins do you need to confess for cleansing? And, and maybe you've been reluctant to confess some sins because they're, they're so common for you that you really have lost hope that you can ever overcome them. Well, that's not what the Scripture says. Christ is more powerful than any sin you can serve. So confess your sin and let him forgive it and cleanse you. What new habits do you need to create that you know will further the purity of your heart and your life? Well, then make those habits. Set them down. Put them on your calendar. Practice purity. This, this is an intentional process. God is doing it in you, but he, he expects you as his child to make every endeavor to be pure. This is all because of your present identity. Never forget you're God's child. Every, every day, every night, whatever is happening, remember you are God's beloved child. Never forget the future perfection. And with those two things in mind, then keep on keeping on 
Keep purifying your heart and purifying your life in line with the character and beauty of Jesus. Let's pray. God, you know us. There's nothing we can hide from you. There's no charade we can engage in that will fool you. You know who we are. And God, you know us. We are your kids. You love us the way a parent loves a child and, and, and to a perfect degree. And so, God, I pray that everyone here that has put faith in you, that knows he or she is born again, that, that this day our chief identity as your children would, would override every other way our, we see ourselves and would, would give us hope for our future, would give us strength for the battle. And God, I also want to pray for those that are among us this morning who are not yet your children. In all honesty, there's, there's no life there. There's no appetite for your word. There's no desire to be clean. They're still dominated by their sin, by Satan, by this world. But Lord, among them are, are some that you've awakened a desire, a hunger, and a thirst for righteousness. You've, you've awakened in their heart a desire to be done with the, the tyranny of sin. And so, God, for those individuals, I pray that your Spirit would draw them to Jesus, the lover of their souls, the Savior, the cleanser, and that, God, this day they would be born again with life from God and that they would put their faith in Jesus, the Savior of the world, and they would begin this journey to a destiny that you have created for all your children. For it's in Christ's name we pray.